You're listening to The Reopening, a podcast that asks, how will America work through the COVID-19 pandemic? How will we innovate? And how will it change our global economy? Each week, we invite top business leaders to share their insights on the road to economic revival here at home and around the world. On today's episode, our guest is Wes Moore, best-selling author, Army combat veteran, social entrepreneur, and chief executive of the Robin Hood Foundation. We talk with Wes about his new book, Five Days, The Fiery Wrecking of an American City, and hear his unique insights on race, inequality, and the power of introspection. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Scott Miller. And this is The Reopening. Scott and I have the pleasure today of having with us my great friend, Wes Moore, who is the CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, of course, but also the author of the brand new book, Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City, a book that I can't put down. Wes, welcome. So good to have you here with us. Brother, it's so good to be here with you, man. Thank you so much, sincerely. And congratulations on all of this. This is fantastic. Oh, thanks. We're, we're loving doing this podcast. First, I got to ask you about the book. I know this is something you had been thinking about doing for a long time. The release couldn't be more timely. We're having a discussion in America about race, about police, and we want to talk to you about that today. We want to talk to you about systemic racism in our society because that's really what comes through in the book Five Days. Can you tell us why you wrote Five Days and what you learned from writing it? I'll tell you something that not many people know. The initial release date for Five Days was April 14th. And they wanted to actually time it for the five-year anniversary of Freddie Gray first making eye contact with police and then being placed into a coma for it. And I believe it was around early March when I went to the publisher, who I adore, and I told them, I can't do this now. It's just, we are right in the middle of when COVID was hitting. I was trying to figure out how are we going to move our entire organization into remote work? We had a situation where Robinhood is based in New York and New York was just getting hammered by COVID at that time. So I just said, I can't get my head wrapped around doing anything else besides focusing on the work at hand right now. And they pushed it back and they said, what about June 23rd? And just kind of randomly threw out a date. And I remember even in conversation with them where part of the conversation was about, you know, the idea of the hope that it's still timely because they, you know, they thought that doing it on the anniversary would make it timely. And then I remember thinking is, but for what we're talking about, when wouldn't it have been timely? Yeah, it's timeless. It's a timeless story. And there's a horror to that, right? Yeah. There's a horror yes. to how timeless this story actually is, because in many ways, what we're seeing right now is essentially just a reliving of history. We're yes, watching we how keep, the names We keep change. doing it over and over again. Right. That's exactly right. We just keep doing this over and over and over again. And so whether you're talking about the name of Freddie Gray or whether you're talking about the name of Anthony Anderson, or whether you're talking about the name of Chris Brown, or whether you're talking about the name of Tyrone West, whether you're talking about the name of Michael Brown, whether you're talking about the name of Philando Castile, or Walter Scott, or Sean Bell, or Eric Gardner, or Sandra Bland, or Breonna Taylor, or Laquan McDonald, or Tamir Rice, or Ahmaud Arbery, or Trayvon Martin. It's like the names just keep going. Right. And that's the horror of it. That's the horror of what we're seeing and what we're talking about. And so, you know, when they decided to move it, they're like, okay, what about June 23rd? It was within weeks of them making that final decision to move the date that we first learned about the name Ahmaud Arbery and then later Breonna Taylor and then later George Floyd. Mm -hmm. 
And so the, the motivation as I was thinking about it was exactly this. It was why these things continue to happen and they're not lessons being learned. Because the thing that I got from five days was that it was our society screaming at us to pay attention to something that we just continue not to pay attention to. And it was about this issue of policing, but it was also the issues that were even deeper than sure. that, that we had not fully wrestled with. And that became part of the frustration that led to this larger uprising that took place in Baltimore. We're not paying attention to the fact that where Freddie Gray grew up and came from, the very home he lived in that he rented made him sick lead poisoning, and, and it turned out that he was so severely lead poisoned, we learned from the autopsy, that his, I think, 36 times the normal amount that someone could, could possibly tolerate. Just the fact that his family had to rent, and all families in West Baltimore are renting, no one owns a home because of redlining. So the things that I'm taking from the book aren't the specific incidents of the five days, but all the issues of systemic racism and the horrors that we keep repeating over and over that the book and you bring up. That's right. I think about 2020, where 2020 has thrown these two genuine crises at our doorstep, right? I mean, the, the first was this introduction of a virus that has had absolutely catastrophic health and economic implications. And actually some of the most dangerous things we've seen about COVID-19, frankly, is we still don't yet know what the bottom looks like. The only thing we know is we're not there yet. And the other was this very unneeded reminder of how inequitable policing is in different communities. But the reality is that with both of these crises, that despite the fact that they are very different crises, they actually expose the very same truth. And, and what I mean by that is while COVID-19 impacted all communities, it didn't impact all communities equally. Mm -hmm. Right. And that communities of color were not just infected, but also have a death rate of double the national average rate. And if you look at policing, while police reform is necessary for all communities, the reality is, is that we watched George Floyd on camera take his last breaths while handcuffed with a man nonchalantly putting his knee into his neck until he was unresponsive. And so, and we watched how his name got added to that much longer list of names. And so while these crises have been different and are different in nature, the reality is, is that dealing with COVID is not about the discovery of a vaccine and, and dealing with equitable policing is not about banning chokeholds or no knock warrants. You know, the, the protests that we're seeing around the country are, are not just about policing reform. They're about race and they're about racism. And the fact that this is not one of the most difficult issues that this country deals with, it's the most difficult issue mm. that this country deals with because it shows itself in every single spectrum of our society. And I think when you look at the life of Freddie Gray, the life of Freddie Gray is just perfectly indicative of that. When you look at the amount of challenges that this young man had to deal with before his final challenge. And I tell you, it's one of the most heartbreaking things that I think about where that week that he was in a coma, after he made eye contact with police, and let's remember what actually triggered that contact in the first place. It was because he made eye contact with police and ran. Yeah. People say, what does that mean? Well, what it means is in certain neighborhoods, that's enough to trigger probable cause. Not in every neighborhood 
but in certain quote unquote high crime neighborhoods, making eye contact and running is enough to trigger probable cause. If he had done that in another neighborhood in Baltimore, he would have been going for a job and that arrest would have been illegal, but it wasn't because he did it in Harlem Park. And so he makes eye contact. An hour later, he's in a coma. And that week was that he was in a coma might've been the most peaceful week of his life. And I don't say that lightly because it means that that week was a week when he was surrounded by doctors and nurses. It was a week when he was surrounded by activists and lawyers. It was a week where everybody knew his name. And it was a week where everybody cared whether he lived or died. Name a single week in his life prior to that where all those things would have been true. And that became part of the problem was that we cannot just spend all of our time mourning Freddie Gray's death. We also have to mourn his life mm-hmm. and mourn the fact that we are watching injustice on so many forms show itself in just some really horrific and inhumane ways where his 25 years that he spent on this planet, I just can't imagine how difficult every day of those 25 years were. In the span of Freddie Gray's life, American cities prospered in general. Wealth was created in cities. They became more and more prosperous, at the same time becoming more unequal. And it's true of almost every city in America. They got rich, but only some people got rich. And, and the differences between rich and poor got greater almost, almost year on year. He's a story of that trend. And, and that's why I think we keep repeating history. Uh, over and over. That's exactly right. I mean, Scott, you know, we have watched how this wealth and income divide has just absolutely exploded. Mm-hmm. Absolutely exploded in, in really dangerous ways, right? Because, you know, even when we look at uh, what happened with the financial crisis that has taken place and even this boom that has happened since the financial crisis, where since the financial crisis, we've watched markets and we've watched, you know, uh, corporate, corporate profits just jump uh, in that time period. We also watched wealth, the average wealth of the African-American family, literally half. And half of African-American families watched all their wealth go away during yes. the financial crisis because so much of it was tied to real estate. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things and all these dynamics became incredibly real, where you were then watching people who could participate in this growth economy participate in the heaviest and the biggest of ways. And those who were not participating in the growth economy continue then to get pushed back. And I think about it in the work that we do over at Robinhood. I run one of the largest poverty fighting organizations in the country. And I also know that our job has only gotten harder in this moment. And even when you think about some of the solutions that we then put in place. So for example, we think about things like the CARES Act where everyone says the CARES Act was a wonderful initiative where we put close to $2 trillion back into the economy, much of it going towards direct cash assistance and so on and so forth. All true, all right. However, let's not forget about the fact of how many people were completely excluded from the CARES Act. Mm -hmm. We designed a system where if you were, for example, if you were undocumented, undocumented immigrant, even if you were working and paying taxes into a system, you didn't receive any money. There was right, no right. there was no check that was heading your way. You didn't you qualify. Of, That's right. You didn't qualify. If you were part of a mixed status family, i.e. you were documented, but someone in your family was not. There was no check that you received, even if you all were taxpayers and paying money into the system. So it was your money 
that was then going out given to other people. If you were working but not making enough to be able to pay tax and system, there was no check coming your way to help you make it through this time period. And when we consider the fact that 23% of all people who have lost their job due to COVID-19 were people who were living below the poverty line already, mm -hmm. i.e. the working poor, people who are working jobs, in some cases, multiple jobs, and still living below the poverty line. These divides are real and they are serious. And to your point, our inability to be able to address those things and to be able to come up with real concrete solutions, it is creating a powder keg that is going to make when these explosions happen, that they are real and they are going to be incredibly damaging to our entire society because we have not dealt with so many of these underlying issues. Wes, do you think that we're in the middle of, or we're at the beginning of a movement to address these issues with public policy changes? Because I take it that that's really what needs to happen here. I believe it and that's exactly what needs to happen. Because I think we have to understand, you know, we're not here simply because, you know, individual good deeds weren't enough. We have to understand that individual good deeds are never going to be enough. That we have really good people doing some really working their hearts out and doing things every single day to make our world better. But they need the air cover of good policy. And right now we have public policy that is currently putting people and keeping people in poverty. And so the only solutions that we are going to have to be able to craft and create when it comes to being able to address so many of these issues is how exactly are we using policy and how exactly are we using public dollars and public taxes mm -hmm. to be able to create real mechanisms of opportunity. Because also I think we have to you know, first be clear about the fact that part of the reason that we have these levels of discrepancy in these disparities is because of public policy. You know, to your right. point, Andrew, the, the point you brought up before, it's impossible to talk about these disparities that exist, and particularly even along racial lines, without understanding things like the Homestead Act yeah. and redlining and discriminatory housing mm -hmm. policies and discriminatory lending policies that have just compounded upon these levels of inequalities. And also understanding the progressive policies, the aggressive policy that we can think about when it comes to being able to address people's lives and things that we know we can do in short order. So for example, it's unconscionable that we still have children that are growing up in homes or attending schools where they're still dealing with things like lead paint and lead piping. You know, we've known that lead is a neurotoxin for a century. Yeah. Makes people crazy, kills people, yeah. everything. It is, it is literally something that poisons the brain. But we have just been incredibly lazy about the way we decided to deal with it. And it's been oftentimes very color and class coded. You know, we know for a fact that when we have so many people who are working and still living below a poverty line, or when we have an insurance system that's exclusively based oftentimes on employers. And so when we watch 11 years of job growth, go away in 11 weeks, like mm -hmm. what we just saw, you're now also watching an explosion of people who were uninsured. And yes. so things that we can do right now to be able to address so much of this stuff is that, you know, how do we think about addressing those issues? How do we think about things like, you know, making the child tax credit fully refundable and making sure that we can lock in improvements until the economy recovers to make changes retroactive to deliver cash quickly to children and families who need it the most? 
I mean, these are things that we know are in place. We know if you take the child tax credit, just one example, that 54% of African-American children don't even qualify for the child tax credit. A policy that was put in place to support the most vulnerable. And then when you're talking about 54% of a population doesn't even receive it. So we have to be honest about many of these policies that we have in place. And we have a chance to be really creative and thoughtful about a dwindling amount of resources and about our ability to be able to make a real statement about who is it that we're going to choose to fight for in this moment. One of the things you point out in the book that would shock most people is that the life expectancy in inner city Baltimore or, or in West Baltimore is the same as it is in North Korea. This is under 65 years old. So it's the same, and this is what we're talking about here. How do we get a conversation going that leads to public policy change? And as a CEO of a foundation, one of the largest in the country that addresses these issues, you know, how do you move this forward? One thing I think we're going to have to do is to make sure that we're all working with the same information and the same facts. I think part of the challenge we have right now is just it's so easy for people to be able to come up with their perspectives and when it's not necessarily a fact-based perspective. And so we can easily either eliminate or deny the importance or the relevance simply because of narratives that are then being driven about the deserving and the undeserving poor. Everybody's got a narrative these days. Everyone has a narrative. What makes it worse are curated news feeds where we get it, our news feed is the news we want to get and we want to share with our friends. And so it's entirely possible, regardless of your ingoing perceptions, you can be completely excluded from a news story just because you didn't like ones like that before. It's so we, we're not even exposed to what's going on. That's right. It's not about education. It's about validation in many ways. And so and so I think part of the thing that we have to do is, you know, we have to be able to approach into so many of these conversations, first with a sense of honesty and also with a sense of understanding our own larger complicity in all this and understanding that it's impossible to address so many of these things without also coming with a context of why so many of these things are the way they are. And again, it's not to play gotcha and it's not to play I told you so. It's simply by saying that we have to be honest about so many of these things. It's one of the reasons I feel like, you know, part of the danger of us as a nation never having a real honest conversation about the role that racism has played in it is because then so many of the policies that we've put in place where that was undergirding many of the policies have then created this level and this narrative of who has worked hard and who hasn't worked hard. It's being honest about the fact that, and it's something that I would urge any administration to be able to do, that it has to have both on a federal, but also on a local and a state level. We have to be honest about the fact that our country and our communities were founded on a racial hierarchy and founded on stolen labor and stolen land. And that many of the laws that were created, that was policy, policy, to segregate and discriminate Mm -hmm. using laws to protect from voluntary school integration and all these kind of things and understanding the role that some of these other processes and and processes put into place. I believe deeply and I think about other countries that have been able to do this, uh, have been able to look at some of their deepest wounds and be able to say we cannot move forward if we're not willing to be honest about our own past and our own complicity in all this. Whether it is countries like South Africa, whether it was places like Germany, whether it was places like Northern Ireland, 
whether it's places like Colombia, whether it's something that Canada has now done twice, mm -hmm. where they've been able to go through a process of essentially saying, we need to have a truth and healing process, a truth and reconciliation process, a truth and trauma process, whatever, however we want to frame it. Because in order for us to come up with policies that are going to bring us together, we have to understand the many things that were tearing us apart in the first place. And I cannot stress enough that part of the reason that this conversation becomes so difficult for people is because there's a fear of saying the wrong thing or mm -hmm. offending this person or saying something wrong and being interpreted as something. I mean, I can tell you probably right now in our conversation, I have probably said something that has offended somebody. For that, I apologize. <laughs> I don't think so, but. You know, but yeah. I do think what it means though is and if I did, I do apologize, but it also means I'm not going to stop talking. Yeah. We can't Good. stop talking. Well, that's the power of speech. We don't learn anything unless we freely speak our minds and listen to one another. You can't move forward. And respect the fact that no matter where you are coming from in the conversation, it's okay. Mm -hmm. That's your perspective and you should own it. And you should and you should cherish it. That's your perspective and it's your history and it's your experiences that have helped to shape your perspective. The thing that I think all of us should then come into this is with an open heart and an open belief that we're all trying to get better here. We're all just trying to learn and we're all trying to get better. And it's an understanding that 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 goal, that goal of solidarity, that goal of understanding that we have we, we we've got each other. We have each other's backs. We want the best for each other. And part of that means being able to be fully honest and cognizant of why that pain and that trauma does exist. And then be able to think about now, how do we aggressively move into a space where we can actually wrestle this thing down in a way that other nations have really moved, but we have not yet. One of the things that I've heard you talk about, Wes, and that you talk about in this book is how you yourself have looked inward and you urge all of us to do the same. And that strikes me as something that CEOs are always doing, whether, you know, that any good CEO needs to look inward so he can lead. Can you talk a little bit about that as a CEO, but also this in the context of this? This was a really important thing for me to process, for me to continue to go through where I have to own my own complicity too. You know, I have to know that I have been part of that problem. And when I say that, it's even things like my own narrative has been part of that problem where, where you know, I remember going down and you know, I remember when we were speaking with this, where when I remember going down to Freddie's funeral and then after his funeral, I had to leave early because I had to go catch a flight to Boston and I had to go catch a flight to Boston because I was giving a talk to a group about poverty. And I knew that part of the reason they wanted me to talk was because of the work that I was doing, the organization I was running but also was because of my own personal story, right? It was a story of the other Westmore. It was a story of, you success. know, it, it was success, right? It was that, that I was being lifted up yeah. as a success story. And also I was being lifted up as the example of, you see the system works. Right. And I realized the danger in that. Yes. Right? Because we cannot be okay with this idea of exceptionalism. We can't be okay with this idea of, well, he made it or, well, she made it. So therefore the system actually works fine. It is about individual individual choice, but then going back to a case like Freddie, what individual choice did Freddie have? 
a person who was born underweight and premature and addicted to heroin and lead poisoned by the time he was two years old, what individual choice did he have? And that's the danger of this. That's right. And, you know, I mean, I, I really get what you're saying because, you know, people always want to hold you out as, you know, you're this great success story. And of course you are, but not everybody can be a Rhodes Scholar. Not everybody can be a distinguished soldier as you were in Afghanistan. Not everybody can graduate from Johns Hopkins University. Not everybody can play athletics at a high level. Not everybody can be an investment banker. Not everybody can be uh, a CEO. I certainly can't be all those things. And so how are we going to expect people who are born addicted to heroin and poisoned by the time they're two to be able just to magically work that all out? Even when all those things happen, we have to remember how many things had to be in place for those things to happen. How many things we had to navigate around and move around. And frankly, one of the things that happens with my story oftentimes is just the single word of luck, right? But luck shouldn't have to be a prerequisite in order to make it in our society. Yeah. Luck shouldn't be something that needs to be this omnipresent in order for people to be able to live their God intended and God destined life. And so that's the kind of thing that I wanted us as a large society and part of the goal of five days, part of the goal of Elias More, part of the goal of Robert Robin, part of this thread is I want us to push to be a little bit more introspective. I want to push myself right. <laughs> to continue to be a little bit more introspective about my path, about our journey, about our country's future. Because so much of that is going to depend on how much we're able to internalize that and be able to make the road just a little bit more even for people to be able to run down. The book has made me look inward too. As you know, I'm a huge Ravens fan and, and a huge Orioles fan and a big part of my growing up, both of those teams. And I, of course, have with you and, and also on my own going up to Baltimore, I've seen what neighborhoods in Baltimore look like. And every time I go, I'm astonished because you don't even feel like you're in the United States and you're only a mile or so away from the stadium. And I think I've internalized this before, but I'm thinking about it on a much deeper level now than I ever thought before. And I guess I'm trying to think about how to reconcile it. And, and what does it really mean? What does it mean to our state? Maryland and what does it mean to us as a people? How do we make this better? Because we can't have neighborhoods in Baltimore like they are now. It looks like it's just untenable. That's right. And knowing all those things that we actually have control over to be able to address it, that we have just made choices not to, right? When you think about Maryland, and, and I know your audience is past Maryland, but I just want to talk to the Marylanders real quick. Yeah. You know, this is the wealthiest state in the wealthiest country at the wealthiest time of our world's history. And we still have our citizens living in abject poverty. Like, how does this make sense? And it's abject poverty like there is nowhere else in the United States. When you're in these neighborhoods in Baltimore, you don't feel like you're in the United States. You feel like you're in a third world nation. That's right. The last several months in Maryland and lots of places have been a shock. And uh, I think your advice to, to, to reflect and to be introspective. Wes, I've just found it enormously helpful. And I think this is, this is something we all need to do. We take a pause and try to understand better the things we're seeing around us and try to use our own internal reflections 
to make a change going forward. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I tell you, this also actually becomes a really, and even if you look at that from the state perspective, right? Mm -hmm. The history of the state of Maryland is actually a fascinating one. When you're thinking about how the state was created and crafted and everything from everything from the history of our state flag to the state bird, all of this stuff, right? Right. But also it's important to understand how much power we actually have as a state to be able to help determine the future. Because mm -hmm. I oftentimes hear people say things like, well, it's Congress won't let us do X or Congress won't let us do Y. But understanding on things like take education is just one example. Congress That's has a local no issue. It's a yes. local issue. Constitutionally, yeah. it is a local issue. So if we want to be able to have a truly introspective conversation amongst our state about where we are, how we got there, and then come up with real ideas and recommendations about how we move forward, Congressperson so-and-so or Congressperson so-and-so has nothing to say about it. The Department of Education, just as one example, is a powerful department, but you know what they cannot do? They don't control curriculum. No. If you look at things like, you know, everything from No Child Left Behind to Race to the Top to all these initiatives that were put together by administrations, that had one component it had to do with was funding. Mm -hmm. That's it. Because that's where the constitutional responsibilities and constitutional jurisdictional authority for the Department of Education, that's where it ends. And so we actually have a chance to be able to say, how are we training our students for the economy of the future in Maryland? Right. How are we using it to, how are we talking about history in a way that's celebrating all of us and not just celebrating the way we've thought about history in the past. We can do that. And we don't have to wait on anyone else or have to get congressional approval. Yeah, we don't need anybody's permission to do that. We can do it. And there's so many facets like that in, in our own individual states, in our own individual towns and counties that can help to shape the way we are both educating our populace, but also helping to shape the way we're talking about prioritization and urgency. Because to your point, if people understood not just where, not just how important the city of Baltimore is to the rest of the state, but they also understood so much of the history of it. It would also help to change the way people are talking about what we have to do now in order to support and propel the acceleration of what we're talking about amongst our neighbors. So as you work in two states, New York and Maryland, very closely with both states, and both states have strong leadership, do you see the future you know, coming out of COVID or getting past COVID eventually, do you see it that all the the innovative policy is going to come from the states as opposed to the federal government? I don't think that it's all the innovation is going to come from the states because I don't think that the federal government, their responsibilities need to be, you know, absolved, especially when I consider the fact that there's only one entity that has the ability to actually print capital. And that's our federal government. Yeah. Our governor can't say I'm going to print extra, you know, Maryland dollars. You know, we're going to need the federal government to be really innovative and aggressive. But I do think that this is actually a really important opportunity for, for our governors and our mayors and our local leaders to step up. And, and I'm proud of the fact that for many of our local leaders around the state and also around the country, we've watched governors uh, really be powerful, be a powerful presence inside of their state, helping to direct conversations, helping to direct resources, helping to establish prioritization, helping to, you know, when a time when a global pandemic hits your jurisdiction, We've seen how people have taken it seriously and we've seen how people have not. I remember having a conversation the other day with someone who's talking about the kickups that we're seeing in COVID-19 in some specific areas. And my point is, it's not like the virus has mutated. 
It's the same virus. Yes. The question is, which leaders took it seriously? Yeah. And which people took it seriously because their That's leaders right. were asking us to. But it's, the, the virus is the virus. And we know what it takes to deal with it. And so I think this actually is a powerful opportunity and a powerful moment for many of our local leaders to show the power of local governance. But it's also a really important moment for people to take local governance and local leaders seriously, to understand that the only elections that matter are not just presidential elections. It matters who your DA or your state's attorney is. It matters, matters who's on the school board. Yeah. It matters who your school board is. It matters who your governor is. These are the type of things that we want people to be able to understand that your democracy and the need for your democratic participation is not exclusively about who sits in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Are you reimagining the way you approach poverty issues coming out of COVID? Absolutely, Andrew, and I think we have to. I think we're reimagining what is gonna be our specific focus when it comes to our grant making. I think we are reimagining what it means when it comes to using our non-grant making muscle and the ability for us to create policy wings. Now, I think about the you know what we've been able to do at Robinhood even since I've been the CEO of Robinhood, where for the first time in the history of the organization, we actually created a policy wing because I just don't understand how you can talk about poverty uh, and poverty uh, alleviation without understanding the role that policy plays in that. So we actually created an entire, we have a chief public policy officer and have an entire wing that focuses exclusively on crafting policies and, and uh, that, that we think is going to make our jobs easier and hopefully one day put us out of business. You know, we've established a, a, a fund with where the, with the exclusive focus. When you look at how philanthropic dollars go unevenly distributed, where everything about 80% of the population that we serve are people of color, but less than 10% of all philanthropic dollars go to organizations led by people of color. And so we've actually created a fund um, that exclusively focuses on the rebuilding of the social service sector, but focusing on supporting organizations led by people of color. The people who are close to the problem are going to be close to that solution. That's so exciting because most uh, nonprofits are in the sort of services delivery business, and a few get to research. But getting all the way to policy is a breakthrough. When I read about what you're doing at Robinhood, I couldn't have been more excited about the potential for that. For people who actually know what it takes to alleviate poverty, to be involved in policies that also alleviate policy. And I think it's important for us to, for even as a philanthropic field, that we can continue to reimagine ourselves, right? Because there's not enough philanthropic dollars in the world to be able to back up for bad policy. If you think about it, so every year, about $700 billion goes out in philanthropy. And people say that's a huge number, $700 billion. That's true. Now, but let's break it down. Uh, $700 billion goes out through philanthropy. About half of that goes towards colleges and universities. Oh, wow. All the moders, right? Sure. And so that 700 now has just become 350. Right. Because half of that has now gone to endowments of colleges and universities. So we have 350 left. And people say well, that's still a pretty big number. True. Now, half of that goes to hospitals and homes of worship. So now that 350 is now 175. Right. 175 now goes towards everything else. Wow. Veterans issues, the environment, children's issues, seniors, poverty, mm -hmm. everything. $175 billion then goes towards everything else. And so when you think about it from that perspective, philanthropy is going to be important. Philanthropy can be catalytic. Philanthropy can be, we can be risk capital. We can do things and invest in things 
But the truth is that is not going to be enough money to be able to drive the conversation about how are we ending the problems without the support of government. Dr. King, I think, said it best. In fact, this quote sits on my desk where it says, philanthropy is commendable, but the philanthropists can never forget the economic injustice that makes philanthropy necessary. Words to live by. Wes, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, you've got a wonderful book out there, which deserves a, to be a great success, and we wish you great success for the book. But but thank you for for talking to our listeners in such, such a compelling way and for the work you're doing at Robin Hood and elsewhere in your life. It's been a great honor to talk to you. Bless you, and the, the honor's been all mine. I look forward to keeping the conversation going, and I'm excited. I'm excited that we can push forward in this work together. So. Bless y'all and thank you. Bless you, Wes. I, I feel so lucky to know you and to call you my friend. Every time we talk, I'm just, I have a huge smile on my face and, and I'm all the wiser. Me too. Me too. Bless y'all. Thank you. Bless you. Bro. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Reopening. If you like this episode, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find other podcasts from the Center for Strategic and International Studies at csis.org slash podcasts.